are live. What's up, fam? It's Actually Life Podcast. We are back for another episode of Meaning Making 101. I'm Chris. I am DJ. Together, we have been going through John Verbeke's foundational awakening, awakening, awakening from the meaning crisis lecture series. It's a 50 lecture series that we've been going over for the past year, uh, one episode a week. Uh, we're going to have to take the last month off, but going through it, taking a few other days off besides that. So I think we're going to be finishing this right at the cusp of 23 into 24, or right at the beginning of 24. So we're on 42 now for all of you that have been following us uh, here on YouTube or on the podcast networks. Appreciate you guys. And uh, for anyone that's new to this, and if you end up finding this subject matter interesting, check out Professor John Verbeke's. Uh, YouTube channel. Just look up John Verbeke, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. You'll find this, find this entire lecture series as well as other series that he's been doing since he did this grand release. And this is uh, this whole thing is about helping humankind uh, face the meaning crisis, as he has termed it, that we are in the midst of. It's basically uh, the root of the many existential myriad existential crises facing our species at this time in history that's causing all the uh, breakdown and division and sense of separation and sense of meaninglessness that is pervading our culture. Membership and everything from churches to Boy Scouts has been going down. Trust in our systems of authority, such as what be they academia, be they science, be they religion, be they government have all been dwindling. And what is at the root of this? Well, he has termed it the meaning crisis, and he takes us through this incredible historical, uh, what would you call it, like a voyage, sojourn, a journey through history, um, utilizing ancient wisdom, as well as modern neuroscience to help deepen our understanding of the uh, situation we find ourselves in, and hopefully help inspire, usher in an awakening from the meaning crisis. I really love uh, how this whole series has come full circle. Brought some very profound, hard to understand uh, concepts into quite stark clarity. And uh, it's helped me personally in, in my own individual life. It's also helped me understand uh, what's going on in the wider world and kind of get a sense of a handle on it because it's such a destabilized time. We're all looking for some sense of stability. So yeah, welcome guys. Thank you so much for joining us here. What we're going to do now is we're just going to go over our previous episode, last episode that we uh, did, which was the spirituality of relevance realization. And it was on awe, wonder, uh, sense of sacred and mystery. And now... We're going to be on to 42 after we do this quick recap. And this episode is going to be on intelligence, rationality, and wisdom. Yeah, so um, we are introduced to uh, Senevic and West, um, who are, I guess, um, looking into Cohen's idea that in, in previous episodes, or the past few episodes, we've been talking about, you know, how we make errors and whether it's 
you know, the errors we make within a certain experiment, which I'm not going to go into the full experiment, but basically, you know, everybody basically made the same error. Cohen was, uh, Cohen's theory that these were performance errors opposed to systemic errors. And uh, uh, as in like, um, you have the competency to perform something, but you're messing it up. Whereas, you know, these experiments that we, um, discussed in previous episodes were showing that, you know, people were actually, um, making, uh, the errors in multiple areas, thus systemic. So anyway, so the question it, is how do we do good cognitive science? Yeah. So what, um, Senevic and West were saying is, well, if Cohen is right, all these errors, uh, that people make are performance errors and, and then we brought up Piaget and his question of how do we distinguish the like the errors of a child versus a drunkard? So like, so competence versus performance. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, you know, so like you know the you know a drunkard may be slurring his speech and not talking properly, not necessarily because he has a cognitive issue. It's it's other factors are getting in the way because he can cognitively speak fine when he's not drunk, right? But, performance issue there's no systematic errors going on yeah. in his brain that makes him like that all the time it's a certain yeah whereas the child makes competency errors which are systemic errors and the drunkard makes the performance non-systemic errors but his ability is broken by um the circumstances opposed to the system itself um so how do we see if errors are systematic uh well one error um, you make an error in one thing and then another error and another thing and another thing and it's the same kind of error, that would be a systemic error. Um, uh, we, uh, so in these experiments we went over, we were finding that the, the errors are uh, systematic opposed to performance errors. And this is like a what? You know, like Cohn was thinking or what he was leading to is basically that these people are making performance errors, whereas looking into it further, we're actually finding they are systemic errors, um, which is, you know, a problem, right? So the rationality errors, what we find now is overwhelming evidence at this point that our rationality errors are, in fact, systematic errors yeah. that we're making. Well, it... be aware of our competence, yet there is an assumption here that Cohen assumes competence is singular or static or... Yeah, exactly. Um, whereas we tend to have multiple um, competencies, and they could be working against each other. Ideally, they're all working towards you helping fulfill your goals, but they can also be in conflict, right? Yes, so our standards can grow as our competency grows. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, because Cohen assumes that it's like a, a finished product, but ch child develop through correcting and overcoming errors. So we like you know the child is to the adult as the adult is to the sage. There is still this growing process, so we have to give up this static idea of competence if we're going to move forward. That's right. So now we have a reliable way to yeah. test for performance area errors. Yeah, so Stanovic and West basically agreed that Cohen's argument is right, but the conclusion is wrong. Yeah, there isn't a single way that rationality yeah. works. That's yeah. the error. Yeah, yeah. So, and you can, you know... Um, Primus' competence is singular and static, but we see it's not. So we have multiple ways 
yeah. problem solving. Yeah, so the in fact that we can be in. Yeah, the dual processing model. Um, yeah, opponent uh, processing. There's a lot of opponent processing going on, which is basically like calibrating. Mm -hmm. Zooming in, zooming out a little bit until you get the focus right. Yeah. So that's what, what our relevant realization cognitive capacity is constantly doing. So then we're introduced to the third in this, uh, you know, in this discussion between scholars over time. Uh, 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 Chaniac, uh, Chaniac, uh, yeah. Chaniac. Okay. Um, ought implies can. So if you ought to do it, you better be able to do it. Yeah, we are applying the right normative theory. Yeah. To participants of these experiments. That, that's what we should be doing. Yeah. You know. Um. So there's an issue with the. No mm -hmm. We. Yeah. And uh, he phrased that the finitary predicament. Um, so we can't we can't make an experiment that leads to combinatorial explosion and cognitive suicide, um, and we can't be arbitrary either. Um, we we got to check what is relevant, relevant realization. Um, so we have to check the relevant aspects to solving any one problem. So in these experiments, they're using formal logic probability logic certainty logic um which and and it's and these experiments are contextually limited and for a reason because if you try to take all context and put it in there then it would combinatorially explode yeah and when we look back on these experiments we find oh it's not about rationality it's actually about intelligence it would, knowing what where when to what degree one should use formal logic there's yeah. a deep, deep difference between rationality and intelligence it's but foolish, foolishness is basically, yeah. you can be highly intelligent, but be acting with poor rationality. Yeah, so Stanovic um, replied to this, is like, all of this stuff is right, but it's not about rationality, it's about intelligence, which we'll actually find out is not the case, but this is his, his argument here, right? And so foolishness is high intelligence, but not rationality. So to test intelligence is to test the ability to deal with comp, um, co uh, computational limitations. And the idea is G, general intelligence, equals GR, um, general rationing, rationality of reasoning. Um, but what we find, though, is there's only a 0.3 correlation. Like, it, it, it does, intelligence does play a part, but it's, not, it's, it's only 0.3 out of 1. Yeah, there should be so, a correlation between intelligence and how, and how we... How well someone yeah so experiments so what is the thing that is accounting for the rest of that yeah you know intelligence we find it's necessary but it's not yeah sufficient to explain how one is being well um, is rationalizing properly yeah. and then uh, Smedsland um, points out there is a difficulty with interpreting the experiments. Because you can't experiment your way out of interpretation. That's right. Because even before that, D Descartes uh, said that rationality is uh, logically false. Or, or to say that I think Descartes rationality is logicality. Yes. False. Yeah. Either is it intelligent? Well, I think that's what. So what is it? And it's meddling. Yeah, I think what D Descartes was actually saying is that. Um, was logic but that ends up That's being false, false. Yes, false. yes 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 and then neither is it intelligent so the, um, we're just descartes made a misstep 
So, so what is it then? What's the missing piece here? And the very processes that make us intelligent don't make us intelligent, don't make us rational. Yeah. So the third response was Smedlin. Smedlin yeah. in the 1970s. Yeah. And, and multi-interpreting events. Right. Experiments. Yeah, it's interpret because and you can't experiment your way out of interpretation. So and it's you can't good. interpret an experiment an experiment that's designed itself to interpret. Yeah. It's a fallacy and a misunderstanding. Yeah, so we get into what the different or the distinction between fallacy and misunderstanding. So a fallacy is you understand the problem correctly, but you reason it incorrectly, leading to a wrong answer. Whereas misinterpretation is you're reasoning correctly, but you misinterpreted the problem. So the assumption of irrationality assumes fallacy and not misunderstanding so it assumes that you understood the problem but you're not applying you're not reasoning correctly opposed to not understanding the problem but i think as we go on we that ends up getting uh let's see um so um we get into like how how smet these um categorizations for um what is it to understand something so you ask people to give you um something that is identical or the same as x like say like x how do you understand x well or how do you tell if somebody understands x you you ask them to give you something that's the same as x that's different than x yep and then something that implies x and then something that's relevant yeah and um smedzlin put aside the relevance for now to look at the um what's same different and implies um Let's see, two, two kinds of... And so basically, we, we found scientists were assuming mm. participants had understood the problem correctly and reasoned correctly when they deemed them irrational. Yeah. The fact that participants were consistently giving us the wrong answer actually seems to tell us that they've largely misunderstood the problem. So we find that relevance realization is key. It's intelligence and relevance realization is playing into our rationality. We need a normativity on how people formulate, control, interpret, make sense of a problem. Mm -hmm. We need a way that's independent of inferential. Yes, yes, yeah. Because um, rationality is non-inferential and relevance Very is pre-inferential. Yes, and relevance is pre-inferential in nature. So the proposal now is we do have a normativity on school uh, we, yeah. we understand what good problem formulation versus yeah. bad problem formulation is and we study this in insight problem solving yeah. so we can apply this here in addition to inference being essential insight yeah. is also essential and that really clicks yeah 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 being able to realize the relevance of something and, and see into it to then uh create a better problem Yes, yes. Um, to zoom out and get a larger gestalt picture and, and mm -hmm. something from that. So it's that ability to do relevance realization once again is playing yeah. in here. So, so understand both insight and inference. Yeah, our in, insight and rationality, not inference. So, yeah. Okay. So, it, it, yeah, so instead of using inference, we're using insight. Okay. Um, the ways people are wise. 
we give up being rational, it's just... Okay, so we're, we're not looking for like a Spock-like creature. Yeah. Something that's pure logic. We're looking for multiple competencies. Normativity of insight. Because intelligence is only weakly predictive of rationality. Mm -hmm. and, what accounts for most of the variance? Yeah, and Stanovic had um, an idea with this is, um, you know, we must have an issue with uh, poor software, so bad psychotech. And then there's inappropriate cognitive style. Um, he didn't, Verveke didn't go too far into that, but because, um, you know, uh, Verveke thinks there's less of a distinction than uh, Stanovic thought, but we left it at that. So what, what is cognitive style? Well, cognitive style is a set of, sensitiv a set of sensitivities and skills you must learn. Uh, yeah. Um, and so what style is most predictive of success? This, this idea of active open-mindedness which is to train yourself to look for the um, patterns of self-deception, your biases, your misused heuristics. Mm -hmm. And this is where we find convergence between uh, schools of philosophy, like Buddhism and Stoicism, but mm -hmm. also as well as modern psychology and cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm -hmm. We find convergence that is recognizing active open-mindedness certainly does allow one to be more sensitive and um, open up that active open-mindedness. Yeah, so like we got to learn about these fallacies and biases, sensitize ourselves to that, to sensitize ourselves to the act of looking for them within our day-to-day -day cognition and then actively contra, uh, counteract them and practicing with others. Notice like our own self-deception and biases and then do that with others yeah. so we can help help each other catch them yeah because you know one of the best ways to get yourself uh out of confirmation bias is to put it aside and then ask somebody else about it and try to limit your prefacing of it you know like particularly like you know like say I stay open to new information well, well like a song you know it's like you got a recording of it and you you're like well i like it or i have an idea about it but i'm too close to it right now you give it to somebody else to listen to, but you don't tell them like, oh, I don't know. Like, you know, the snare's hitting a little funny and this, no, you just, just give them to them as is. And that way they can, because there's like confirmation well, bias lo looking for, but then there's denial bias. Like, oh, I think this sucks because I, I just want to think it sucks because I'm, yeah, you know, yeah. like. You want to preload them with any information. Yeah. You want to let yeah. them get a completely fresh perspective. So we want to actively counteract our biases. But we don't want to overdo yeah. that either. We don't want to reach combinatorial explosion yeah. where we are so open that we have You'll choke. infinite information. Yeah. Analysis paralysis. Yeah. Decision. Yeah, exactly. Or over reflecting like we talked about when we were talking about Hamlet. You know, he's just sitting there and over reflecting to the point where he can't he can't do. So we want to do this to just the right degree. That's where the calibration of our relevance realization comes in. And doing this to just the right degree is what allows for the agency of wisdom yeah and wisdom being how you come about the knowledge opposed to the knowledge right yeah. um so what predicts how well uh one uh participates in um the the uh, mindedness it's well being good at problematizing things and not like modern problematizing where everything's a problem you know like being able to take this bit this bit find the relationship between them, find the missing pieces, fill in things. 
and then wonder and curiosity. Yes, yes. To what degree is one willing to learn? Yeah. That curiosity to have more information to solve problems, not just get. So yeah. going to be like a solution. Yeah, well, because you know, a problem is not just a bad thing. A problem is a, the act of coming to a solution. First, you have a question, then you create a problem out of it, so then you can have a solution, an answer to your question, ideally, right? That's the orientation. That's the feel of curiosity. It's like you're trying to find out something for a reason. Yeah, yeah. In a, a state of wonder, with your mind wide open, and our wonder is beautiful because it opens us up to see our own existentiality. You know, our 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 own. Uh, what is it? How do you call that? Vitality, our own sense of, you know, finite nature. Mm. You know, we are going to end one day. And we have problems that we need to solve. But just to open up to existence itself as it is, mm-hmm. be wide open and considerate, and then to be curious enough to yeah. solve this and, problem. And I guess there has to be some, there, there has to be some kind of, um, I don't, I don't necessarily like the word in, uh, incentive, but I think that's the best word I got is incentive to like, sure. why ask the question? Why solve it? Other, and, and more than just a casual wondering, what is the incentive behind it? Cause like, you know, in the sciences, you've got people who want to put rockets in space and have them orbit reliably around things. But then, you know, say you've got kids and you want them to live a better life than you. How do you, it's you know, incentivized by materialistic, uh, do you want to incentivize greed? Or, or sloth, which I read, some, I read something interesting about sloth. Of separation? Or do we want to optimize love? Yeah. You know, the orientation of agape, as we go yeah. through the series, that kind of Christ-like love that is unconditional. Yeah. It's willing to look at anything before it judges it. It's willing to try and understand everything and anything that comes before it as deeply as it can, in a caring sort of way. So it's very full of care. It's a very careful, deep sort of consideration. Yeah. And, you know, it... You can't consider it deeply unless you're willing to be unconditional. Yeah. And... So that, that orientation of love is protects us. That's a proper way to incentivize ourselves. Yeah. So on Sloth, um, and I found this interesting, um, you know, reading about it the other day, and Sloth isn't just the not wanting to move do anything it's also they're not wanting to look into it's like the opposite of wonder not not looking into it's just too much work yeah, to think about that you're like, just i don't want to do that you need to turn your brain off yeah and, to think about it. and you know dude i've been you know I, that's too complicated i've been there like i, I watch a, a lot of current events and affairs and all the stuff that's going on socially politically spiritually and all that stuff and sometimes i really want to be like you know screw it i don't want to do it anymore i don't want to look at it or anything but i have to because i have this nagging thing that needs to know and create a problem and solve the freaking problem <laughs> it's it's uh it's a wise thing for us to pay attention to what's going on in our world because we are the stewards we are the pinnacle of evolution on this planet and the ones with the most impact and we're both we're both the ones have, you know have a say in our evolution at this point forward yeah. and you know, how are, how are we going to function with the rest of the planet and one another? Are we going to try and develop a more symbiotic nature? Or are we going to continue to break apart, fragment, and divide? Well, we're in an interesting um, predicament as a species. We're both the steward of our future in the world, but we're also the inheritors of this world as well. 
that very much personalizes this problem, if you really think about it. And it's not just, you know, humans got to go or this thing's bad, you know, get rid of it entirely or any of that. You know, it's like, you got to think. You personally may not be here after certain things are said and done, but humans will. So it's humans and people that have made protecting will still be here and their progeny, their children yeah. will be here. And I mean, in one way or another, we, how do we get smartphones and cameras and computers and things? It wasn't just one smart person on their own. It was a whole hell of a lot of cooperation, a lot of slave labor, yeah. a lot of really screwy mining practices and things going on that have come together for us to have access to, to incredible technological capacity. And you know, the amount of money that I'm paying for a smartphone does not cover the cost the human cost yeah. the earth you know the damage to the earth cost but that doesn't mean it can't in the future we so, just need yeah. to figure it out there's ways for us to give back with our hearts and why not try and make this world a little bit better while we're here and hey even if you're selfish just a little bit better for you and yours if it's truly better and actually works it'll make it better for other people because you won't be putting your own neuroticism and bullshit that academic it's, term it's, out in the world if we improve yeah and we self-reflect and we improve within ourselves, then the real revolution can unfurl and do what yeah. it needs to do to wrap around the world. But it's got a naturally butterfly effect out of us. Otherwise, you're right. It's like coming out of our own egoism. Yeah. And we're going to be trapped in that selfish mindset. Well, it, and you can't feed the world if you can't feed yourself. That doesn't mean just stuff your face and let people starve. But you gotta. But if I want to live in a world, in a more considerate world, yeah. a wiser world, and a truer, more honest world, then I've got to learn how to do that yeah. myself. Yeah. And I find where I still sin, I still miss the mark, I still fall short, I still give in to habits and lusts and passions in ways that make me feel ashamed as a human being. So I have a lot of growing left to do. We all do, but that I think is the impetus of this series is to inspire us to start doing that. Again. <laughs> Yeah, and there's a difference between a hypocrite and missing your own standards. Because we all miss our own standards. The hypocrite is the one who says it's all for everybody else and doesn't give a damn. Um, so that's the difference. So if you're ever feeling like a hypocrite because you fell short of your standards, it's like, look, you know, we all fall short. The fact that you have standards is a godsend. You know, where did these standards come from? These standards of goodness come from? Yeah, well, a, a lot of in yeah. yourself because you know that you, you have standards yeah. and you know that there's a potential higher way for you to be. Yeah. And, it, and if we start to do that, boy, does it feel good. Yeah. It feels deeply fulfilling and meaningful. It gives our lives a sense of purpose, gives ourselves a sense of belonging and a place in this world, again, a role to act through. Yeah. And every one of us can make a difference right now. And it's, I really do believe it's down to every single one of us as individuals to, uh, begin fomenting our own awakening and, and let that naturally ripple out around us and you know we can find ways to heal the rifts between our spiritual systems the rifts between spiritual spirituality and science itself our rifts between one another and our nations and so on and so forth and the rifts within ourselves so if we don't learn to do it now then i don't know if we make it where we're not wise enough to wield the level of techno technology that we have access to now and the level of intelligence that we have as a species is highly dangerous without wisdom to responsibly wield it. So this is the game right now, and we are learning how to generate wisdom and be in the highest, most optimal state that the human organism can be in, in that state of flow, that state of satori, to reach those higher states of consciousness and gain the wisdom we need to help save 
our planet and species from this meeting crisis. Yeah. Hey, that was a that was a thirty minute intro on the dot. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Getting better. Who's Shirley? Hmm. Hey guys, this is uh, John Trevakey's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. It's a landmark lecture series. We're on episode 42 on intelligence, rationality, and wisdom. Make sure that you smash that like and subscribe button if you're enjoying the show. And do the same for John Trevakey. Tell people about him. Let's let this wrap around the world. All right, here we go, y'all. Welcome back to Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. So last time we were taking an in-depth look at uh, the work of Stanovich and rationality as we are building towards um, an account of wisdom uh, because that is deeply intertwined with um, the cultivation of enlightenment and of course with the cultivation of meaning. We noted that Rationality is an existential issue. It's not just a matter of how we're processing information. It's something that is constitutive of our identity in important ways and our mode of being in the world. And we'll come back to that again. One of the core things we saw as we took a look at the rationality debate in which Stanovitz's work is, was, is situated is that debate showed us a couple of important things. It showed us if I can put this as a formula, that right, rationality does not equal logicality and it does not equal intelligence. That debate also showed us that we need multiple competencies uh, when we're talking about rationality. We need an inferential competency, but we need an independent competency of construal, and then I propose to you how we could understand what that competency is and what the normative theory is acting upon it, namely insight, good problem formulation. We then moved into what Stanovich saw as the missing piece. If intelligence doesn't give us rationality, what's the missing piece? There's two missing pieces. Um, they overlap in some important ways. Uh, one is the notion, he calls it mindware, what I've called psychotechnology, and the other is a cognitive style, and the cognitive style that he talked about was active open-mindedness, which he gets from Jonathan Barron, and this is the idea that what you should do is cultivate a sensitivity, an, an ongoing awareness of the presence and effect of cognitive biases in your uh, cognitive behavior, in your cognitive life, and to actively counteract them. I pointed out that unlike Stanovich, who doesn't emphasize this as much, Jonathan Barron, who's the originator of this idea as a constitutive feature of rationality, uh, points out that you can't do that too much, because if you try to override too many of your cognitive biases, you of course will be also overriding them in their functioning as heuristics that help you avoid combinatorial explosions. So getting an optimal form of active open-mindedness rather than a maximal form of it is crucial uh, to rationality. <clears throat> I want to just briefly stop here and 
be a little bit more precise about how I want to use this term. I've been using it throughout, and I, I basically defined it uh, by example and then it, through exemplification. But I want to be a little bit clear about it because it's going to be relevant uh, as we go forward and talk about uh, wisdom. So here's a definition I want to offer uh, to try and clarify what I mean and how I'm using the term psychotechnology. Um, as I said, I, I don't claim to be the originator of this idea, but I am claiming that this is the particular uh, slant I'm taking on this idea of psychotechnology. Psychotechnology is a socially generated and standardized way of formatting, manipulating, and enhancing information processing that's readily internalizable into human cognition and that can be applied in a domain general manner. That's crucial. It must extend and empower cognition in some reliable and extensive manner and be highly generalizable among people. Prototypical instances are literacy, numeracy, and graphing. So I want to just make it very clear, it's not just that anything we use mentally will count as a psychotechnology. So the cognitive style of active open-mindedness will probably make use of psychotechnologies in order to help track bias. Uh, but obviously, Stanovich means something much more comprehensive. He means a set of skills, psychotechnologies, sensibilities, and sensitivities, right, that will help you in a domain general manner note and re actively respond to the presence of cognitive bias. We can then ask, what is it about people that, if intelligence is insufficient for this, what is it about people that is predictive of them acquiring this? Right? Now this is learnable, right? And we, we talked about the need for cognition as being an important predictor. So this is uh, the degree to which you are motivated to go out and look for problems. You're trying to find, formulate, and solve problems. Uh, so in that sense, you are generating your own instances of learning and problem solving in a quite directed and comprehensive manner. I suggested to you that there's two ways in which we can think about this, curiosity and wisdom. I want to stop here and note something about this need for cognition that I'm now going to be uh, uh, making use of um, in today's uh, lecture, which is the connection between the need for cognition and what Arlen calls problem finding. Because that's a, a, a very central feature, I, think, I would think, I would say an essential feature of what it is uh, to have a high need for cognition. Arland argues that problem finders are very good at finding problems, as the name indicates. They're, they are able to realize problems and connect things together in ways that people, other people have not previously done. Uh, some people have argued that this is central to creativity, but important for our purposes is that Arland, and, and this is kind of prescient of this whole argument, he made this argument in 1990, she argues, that this is, she argues that this is central to wisdom, that one of the 
crucial features of being a wise person is the capacity to find problems that other people have not yet found. I want to take a moment here and offer a suggestion of how we can think about what makes somebody a good problem finder. I want to, this is not in Arlen. This is my attempt to extend and develop Arlen and make it a little bit more concrete and practicable. So I, I, want, to, I want to propose to you this idea. We don't find problems typically in a vacuum. Uh, we don't do anything in a vacuum. There's always uh, you know, already a background of uh, existing issues we're dealing with, uh, other people are dealing with in our culture. I would suggest to you that a good problem finder can do this. Here's some existing problems in the right, space in which human beings are operating. And what a good problem finder does is, I think, not just simply add to that. I mean, that, that would be kind of a basic skill in problem solving, uh, problem, follow, problem finding. But I think people that we regard as being exemplary in this and doing it very well and therefore demonstrating an aspect of creativity, it helps to explain why problem finding sort of overlaps between wisdom and creativity. They can do the following thing. They can find a problem that if solved would make a significant impact on these existing problems. So what I'm suggesting to you is that good problem finding is the ability to generate a problem nexus. So that if you go in and say, here, here's some problems in various domains, and then they are all centered on this uh, core problem, and if we can address that core problem, then we can go back and make a significant impact uh, on this. Um, I think uh, many of the people, I don't take credit for this, I think uh, the person who uh, should be given credit for this, and I'll talk about that later today, is Dreyfus. The idea, right, that many of the central problems of cognition are centered on this ability to realize relevance, I think that's a very powerful kind of uh, problem finding. It's the generation of a problem nexus, and I've tried to show you how it can be very generative of theoretical and empirical research. So I think that's part of uh, what it is uh, to uh, be a good problem finder. It is to generate the problem uh, nexus. I also want to point out something uh, that I'm going to come back to, which is this is going to overlap with some Im an important aspect in some current theories of the nature of understanding um, uh, that have to do with the effectiveness uh, of how we are relating to knowledge. Now that sounds very vague, and I will come back to that more carefully. What I need you to understand right now is that this problem finding, right, uh, this the ability to generate a problem nexus will also uh, make a significant impact, uh, interact with uh, some of the best accounts, I think, that are emerging about the nature of understanding. And that's going to be important because we want understanding to be part of uh, our, our theory, our account of wisdom. Now, I want to come back to the affective side of this. So I've suggested to you that one part of good problem finding, sorry, one part of uh, need for cognition, right, is good problem finding, and then good problem finding uh, is the ability to generate a problem nexus. 
right? Need for cognition. I, look at this word here, right? Also points to uh, obviously an affective, a motivational component. And this takes us into the two things I talked about before, wonder and curiosity. And I propose to you that although these terms are slippery, uh, one way in which we can pick up a sort of polar opposites um, is that curiosity is much more in the having mode. It's much more about manipulating and controlling things. And wonder is much more in the being mode. It's much more about encountering mystery and calling into question one's worldview, one's identity, etc. So that's why wonder can shade into awe or potentially even into horror. Now I want to pick up on something here because this again has some very deep connections to wisdom. So I actually have this on a, like a, a, a plaque in my apartment. Um, it's a famous quote from Socrates, which is, wisdom begins in wonder. Wisdom begins in wonder. And like, like everything about Socrates, it is, it is simultaneously provocative and enigmatic as to what did Socrates actually mean by that. And there's two different interpretations. And you can see this in the different ways in which wonder is treated by Plato and, of course, by Aristotle. You can see uh, this in this sort of distinction to some of the current work on, uh, on wonder. But for Plato, the point of philosophy is to develop and extend that sense of wonder. So that what you're actually trying to do for Plato is you're trying to deepen wonder into awe. Because he feels that this awe will have the greatest capacity for transforming us, for getting us deeply involved in the anagogic ascent. That makes sense. Aristotle also thinks that philosophy begins in wonder, but I think you could make a good case uh, that, and many people have, right, that Aristotle sees this more in line with curiosity trying to figure things out, and that what you're ultimately doing, I would say for Aristotle, is this. You're trying to basically shape wonder into curiosity in philosophy and then resolve the curiosity in some answer to some question. So for Plato, wonder sets you on a quest of, of anagoge. But for Aristotle, wonder gets you to formulate questions that you then answer. And that's a fundamental difference between them. And it's interesting because, you see, Plato is here sort of pushing for meta-accommodation, as we've seen before, when, when we talked about this, when we talked about right, the numinous. And Aristotle is, of course, pushing for meta-assimilation. Of course, when I answer questions, it may force me to do conceptual accommodation. But overall, this is trying to stabilize right, and assimilate and sort of home things for you, uh, the kind of stuff we saw in Garrett. So philosophy is, is working within that whole structure. And why am I pointing this out? Because, of course, again, we're invoking this higher order 
relevance realization that's at work within this need for cognition, within wonder and curiosity. <clears throat> All right. So we saw that Stanovich was able to respond to many of the defenders of human rationality in the rationality debate. He was able to respond, respond to Cohen by crucially noting that we have to challenge Cohen's assumptions. We do not have a, sim, a single competence. Well, I also added in that we shouldn't think of it as static or completely individual. Right. He was able to respond to Cherniak by pointing out that Cherniak was quite right about the centrality of dealing with computational limitations, but that what Cherniak is really giving is not a theory, because Cherniak's theory is a theory of relevance realization, is not a theory of, of rationality, but a theory of intelligence, something that Stanovich also uh, agrees with. And then to Smedslin, he, uh, Stanovich acknowledges that we need an independent normativity on construal, and we've already seen that we can uh, answer that, uh, well, at least I'm proposing that we can answer that by a different uh, area in psychology, which is the work on good problem formulation and insight, with problem formulation that avoids combinatorial explosion, ill-definedness, and the way in which we can be misdirected by salience to misjudge what is relevant. We back. We had Mike issues earlier. Sorry about that, guys. Yeah, if you guys couldn't hear, all right, email apologies. Jason. Check, yep. check. Hey, we're both here. Hey, it's hey. working. All right. Sounds Sorry. Good. Sounds oh, good. man. Yeah, so I was still coming through DJ's mic, apparently. Yeah, uh, you know, so, sorry about that. You know, still figuring stuff out. We don't have a uh, dedicated, dedicated sound, yeah, person, sound person, nor do we have a lot of the other stuff that makes it a lot easier. We're we're working with, now, mind you, I'm not, not crapping on the Soundcraft board because it's a very nice board, but it's still meant for live. Look forward to an upgraded podcast very soon. Yeah. We're going to have mics, new cameras. It's going to be nice. All right. So I missed a little bit of the beginning there. I, I came in at the point where he's talking about uh, literacy, numeracy, graphing, and then Stanovich, uh, if intelligence is insufficient, what is what okay. is it, it that allows for understanding um, active open-mindedness? There's right. some stuff before that. that it, yeah, just that a little bit. So basically in this episode, we're talking about how intelligence is not equal to rationality. Rationality is not equal to logicality. And then we are uh, refreshed on what a psychotechnology is. Psychotechnology mm -hmm. is basically any kind of technique of the mind, language, mathematics, things like that yep. are psychotechnologies. Uh, so just literacy, social, numeracy, literacy graphing, numeracy, stuff like yep. that, yeah. Psychotech is a socially developed and standardized uh, technique that's used in a way that sustains and empowers human cognition, and it's also highly accessible and usable by broad numbers of people. So anything that we use in our minds, um, sets of skills and sensitivities that help us in a domain general manner to catch cognitive biases as well. So that's what we need. We need something uh, for this active open-mindedness to really help refine and tune it. We recognize that cognition, um, by which we have curios curiosity and wisdom, gives us a motivation to look for and solve problems, mm -hmm. self-directed. Now, problem finders are really good at realizing problems and connecting the dots, connecting things that others haven't. And Arlen 
noted that this is central to wisdom. Now, yeah. Verveke's proposition is that we don't find problems in a vacuum. A good yeah. problem finder finds problems that, if solved, have impacts on other connected problems. So basically... The problem a, nexus. Yes, a, a good problem solver generates a good problem matrix and then recognizes the nexus within that matrix. It catches the core problems that you, yeah. that connects to the other problems. So a good nexus finder has great problem-solving capacity. Then. Actually, that's interesting. So like, you can imagine people like this. So the people who um, are like consultants, mm-hmm. yeah. that's what they're doing. That's right. They're finding the core problems to your matrix of problems, and this is where the nexus of your problems. Yes. So then you can deal with this problem that'll help you deal with the rest instead of chasing your own tail. It seems that's precisely what Verbeke's done with the series. He's recognizing the meaning crisis as the nexus of the many myriad existential crises that are part of what we now call the meta crisis. Well, and even within these um, extended debate, Mm -hmm. I'll call them extended debates that are happening between you know philosophers and scientists here that he's going through he's also finding you know the core issues within within the arguments being made you know mm-hmm. the herald if you will if you want to go uh um what do they call that um dialogos on it you know he's mm-hmm. heralding he's like okay here's this central problem if this and this guy says this and this and this and they're all kind of right in their own way then there seems like there's something here mm-hmm. ah here's another person who talked a little bit on that and expands upon that and um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the word um explicates yes um the core issues thus pointing to even more core issues mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so the need for cognition um yes so there's yes. so we have wonder which is of the being mode it's well done for its own sake curiosity is comes from the having mode which is the part that wants to yeah, have and own yeah. and need, feel senses of need you know the having mode gets us food water and shelter but yeah. our sense of wonder helps us maximize our own inner potential and you you know you participate in wonder and being wonder wonderful if you will um opposed to curiosity i have a curious thought if you will mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so this is a quote from Socrates, wisdom begins in wonder. And he went to two inter- interpretations of this, uh, Plato's interpretation. Uh, the point of philosophy is to develop and extend the sense of wonder. And to deepen that wonder into, into awe. awe. Yeah, thus, yeah, and thus getting us involved in this. Transformation, self-transformation, yes, yeah, the anagogic ascent. ascent. Yeah. It's seen as like a quest that you're taking yeah. on so this when is, you come from the mode of wonder. What is a meta accommodation? Mm-hmm. Meta accommodation, yes. And then the second interpretation is Aristotle's interpretation, which is similar, but it's it's to shape wonder into curiosity and then resolve it, yes. thus stabilizing it. So meta assimilation is you know assimilating it. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. there's the, which is question. So Plato's interpretation was the quest, and. Aristotle's, Aristotle's is, is the question, and actually, the yes. word "quest" is in question. It's, it's interesting, isn't that interesting? <laughs> yeah, I never really thought of it before, but I'm like, hmm, as I'm writing this, um, and that's that's all I got for the notes. That that all seems to square. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, so, so that's the philosophy of wonder right there between Aristotle and Plato. Yeah. Aristotle's trying to stabilize to have. It's coming yeah. from having mode. Yeah. Plato is trying to be. 
you know, on a quest in an I, anagogic ascent within oneself. I I, yeah. I like both interpretations, both and I find both are useful. But it really makes sense of like you know the point of sitting down and talking philosophy and doing this. It can seem very hoity-toity and high-minded, but it's it's to develop a sense of awe and like whoa, yes, like, oh, and, and to get share you, that together and get you into it. Yes, and whereas Aristotle's is, is yes, get you into it, but to resolve say a question or um to have a resolution to it to stabilize again which i you know you could take you know plato's and that would be the um one half of the self um what is it uh self-organizing criticality mm-hmm. you know the sand building up and building up and mm-hmm. then oh yeah breaking yeah. down and then forming the base again and building up so both interpretations are like the two parts of that cycle Yes, you know, yes. The, the that makes sense. Yeah, because everything's all it's like that. It's like the relevance realization is this constant calibration. It's always yeah. both sides of this polarity that are actually playing together and opponent processing. They need each other yeah. to help us calibrate, focus in on what yeah. we're whatever we're trying to do. So that catches us up, fam. We're gonna jump back in now to John Verbeek's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, episode forty-two. Let's go. Let's go. I now want to refer. I now want to return to Stanovich's theory um, properly. What's his positive account of what rationality is? So the way Stanovich does this, and right, um, and it, I, I don't want. Sorry, the way he's doing this overlaps with a lot of other work, and this is a point that he himself makes. There's a lot of convergence in psychology on the idea of a dual processing theory, that we have multiple competencies. Now what this dual processing is, is itself very controversial. Initially people talked about two systems, and then they talked about two styles, and because of critiques, um, it was hard to maintain those terms. And I'm not even convinced that they are, you know, that they're distinct things, they might lie on a continuum. But the basic idea, so, to avoid all that controversy, they're simply called S1 and S2. Right? And like I say, I'm not claiming that they're discrete systems or even discrete styles. It's quite possible that they are polar positions within a continuum of processing. I'm going to put all of that aside because it's not relevant for what we're talking about here. Right? So the, the main idea here is that these are different ways in which you process information. And this process works largely intuitively, and it works very much in a highly associational fashion. It makes use of a lot of implicit processing, and it's very fast, right? It's very fast. So this is the kind of processing that you're using all the time uh, in what we've, uh, you know, when we talked about this when Varela talked about your ability to cope. This is your coping, right? So when I'm moving around the environment, I'm relying a lot on my intuitive knowledge, my capacity for implicit learning, the way I can quickly associate things together, right? And so. I would add to this, of course, as I, as I argued before, that this is also sort of how we're primarily caring for things, uh, being involved with them, finding them salient, etc. But nevertheless, this is, the, this is the part of your 
cognition that is operating a lot of the time in the background. Um, in fact, I, I, I want to. I'm going to step aside from Stanovich for a moment and, and and propose to you that instead of thinking of these of discrete systems, we can think of different states where you're in, where one style or other is more foregrounded and the other is more backgrounded. So I'll come back to that. Let's let's do the. What's S two? Well, S two operates more deliberately. In both senses of the word, like deliberation, where I'm engaging in reflection, and deliberate in the sense that I am aware of it and intentionally directed in it. So it's deliberately, right? So it tends to not work associationally, it tends to work inferentially, argumentatively. Right? Argumentation in the philosophical sense, not in the sense of having an emotional conflict with somebody. The processing, of course, all processing has, and this is an important point, some aspects of it that are implicit. So this is more a, 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 a contrast of emphasis. But this processing is much more explicit. And it tends to be very slow. So Kahneman has a book out right now, Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow, that is a very good sort of discussion of this dual processing, mo dual processing model, because as I said, there's a lot of theoretical argumentation and evidence that is convergent on this. So this is a very highly plausible thing. And you, you see it showing up in many, many different domains um, uh, within psychology. All right. So one way of uh, thinking about this, and this is uh, a way in which Stanovich and Evans have tried to get a clearer, more precise way of distinguishing the two is the degree to which they're tapping, making use of working memory. So the idea is S2 really relies on working memory, whereas S1 relies much less on it. And so it's much more automatic in that sense in its operation. So let's, let's take an example. Uh, where you use the two systems, right? So you're grocery shopping, and you come up to the cashier, and they're ringing you in, and you've got a, a, a normal sort of basket full of normal groceries, and the cashier says to you, well, that'll be $1,000, please. And you go, what? Now, where did that what come from, right? Where did that what come from? Well, you have associations between sort of these objects, their prices, sort of the amount. You can, you've, got, you've picked up implicit patterns, right? Notice how intuitively, associationally, implicit, and quickly you do, what? That's wrong. It can't be $1,000. That makes no sense. So you call the cashier into question by using your S1 processing. Now, what the cashier has to do Right, though she can't just she or he can't just respond this way to you. The cashier can't go. Nah, it's a thousand. I can sense it. What does they have to do? They have to deliberately. No, they have to take out each thing. They have to get out the bill. They have to deliberately. Right. Notice they have to concentrate. They have to pay attention step by step. Make the argument to you explicitly and slowly. No, no. Look. Look. Look, look at this matches, this ma 
they're using S2 processing. Right? Now these, of course, are in a trade-off relationship because the problem with, and this, of course, is, and Stanovich acknowledges this, but, right, part of the problem with this is how much demand it puts on your working memory, how slow it is. So you cannot rely on it. Yet another argument why you can't Descartes your way through your whole of your existence, right? You can't rely on it for most of your behavior because you will just head into the ocean of combinatorial explosion. You will get so, so slowed down and so overwhelmed that you won't be able to live your life. You'll commit cognitive suicide. But of course, we have this for a reason. We have this because it is supposed to override to a degree this. So notice that these two systems are in a, basically an opponent relationship. They are both working towards the same goal of making you adaptive, but they tend to work in opposite fashions. And uh, Stanovich sees S2 as largely having, and there's deep truth to this, having a corrective function for S1. All right. So now I can first give you his theory of foolishness, which he understands as dysrationalia, like dyslexia. Right. And then, by implication, his theory of rationality, which, because it's a, a comprehensive kind of rationality, it deals with a comprehensive kind of foolishness, it's now bordering on an account of what wisdom is. So here's the idea. What is active open-mindedness doing? Well, what's happening is this is the place where, you know, all the heuristics and biases are. This is where they're operating. And what happens here is they make you leap to conclusions. Remember when I did the problem with you, you know, where you've got the pond, and on day one there's so many lily pads and it doubles every day, and on day 20 it's done on what day was the pond half covered, and your S1 shouts at you, 10 days, 10 days in, because it's half and half, and that's how it works. And that's wrong, because on day 19, half the pond was covered, right? And what you have to do is, S2 has to basically override how you're leaping to conclusions, how you leap to the conclusion that the people at the airport are in danger because of the representative heuristic or the availability heuristic. So S1 is constantly giving, but I need this. That's what makes me fast. If I'm not leaping, I'm not fast. I'm not coping. Leaping and coping are deeply interdependent. Okay? But the thing is, sometimes, and again, it's unclear what the degree is. That's one of the ways in which I think Barron is a little bit more clear than uh, Stanovich. But sometimes we need to override this leaping to conclusions. So he sees that what active open-mindedness is basically doing is teaching you to protect this processing from being overridden by the way S1 makes you leap to conclusions. You are foolish, you have dysrationalia, if you are highly intelligent and yet you do not, you have not trained S2, right, to be properly protected from the interference from S1. Do you see what's going on here? This is how he's ultimately responding to Cohen. You have these two competencies. You need both of them. They are constitutive of your cognitive agency. So they're both 
constitutive competences, but this one can interfere with this one, and that can cause you to behave irrationally. What active open-mindedness does is to protect this kind of, kind of processing from that interference. So that's Stanovich's central model. Now, I, I, I think that's definitely a good account of active open-mindedness. My central criticism of this is I think it's an insufficient account of rationality. Insufficient. I, I grant that a lot of work has been done here. Rationality is not being equated to intelligence. It's not being equated to um, logicality. It's centered on overcoming self-deception. There's an account of self-deception. It's so platonic, eh? It's so platonic. Here's the monster, and it's interfering with the man, right? So platonic. And so we get that interference effect. That's what's causing us to be foolish. That makes us self-deceptive. If we cultivate active open-mindedness, then we can reduce the interference, and that makes us more comprehensively rational. I think that's all, well, it's all elegant. It's beautiful. Uh, and the fact that it keeps, this kind of work keeps getting replicated and massively convergent, it's so highly plausible and profound. That's all, I think that's all worthy of being noted. However, let's look to this. Because is leaping always a bad thing? Well, I already implied you need to leap to cope, but let's take a look, right, at the work of Baker, Senate, and Sisi from 1996. Okay? So what they investigated a thing they called inductive leaping. I think calling it inductive leaping is a mistake because I understand induction as an inferential procedure. And what they're explicitly doing is not inferential nature, but it is not inferential in nature. So I'm going to suggest that we don't use that term, and I'm instead going to use the more neutral term of cognitive leaping. What's cognitive leaping? Well, cognitive leaping, how did they test it? Uh, they tested it in the following ways. I give you various patterns that are unfolding across time, and that Right? At various times, I stop and I ask you if you can tell me what it's going to be. One version of it is there's, like, like we talked about this before, I'm, I'm a bunch of dots, and what's it going to be? And more dots get filled, and eventually you, you're able to leap and say, oh, it's going to turn out to be a sofa. And notice how you're doing a gestalt, you're going from features to gestalt, you're doing that leap, and you're going from looking at the dots to looking through them, you're doing an opacity transparency shift, all that stuff we talked about, right? Mindfulness. Um, uh, is, is involved. Now, why does that matter? Well, what they found was something very important. This allowed them to operationalize kind of the, in, uh, at least an aspect of the inevitability of insight. Because often you don't know what's going on in an insight. There's this leap. And what they, uh, how they operationalized it was this. You're a good leaper, you're a good leaper if you can use Fewer cues and accurately say what the final pattern is going to be. So if, you're, if, you're, if, you, if you use fewer cues and you're making lots of mistakes, you're not very good. If you're largely accurate but you have to get a whole bunch of cues, then you're not a very good leaper. But if you use few cues and get to the full gestalt reliably, right, then you're a very good cognitive leaper. Okay. You're doing this, you have this skill, this facility with pattern detection, pattern completion. Why is that so important? Well, 
because that, and that's what the, re the experiment showed, this is directly predictive of insight. The better you are at leaping, the better you are at insight. So do you see the tension here? If I try to shut off too much leaping to conclusions, I'm also shutting off the machinery that makes me more insightful. It's, right, we have, look, we have to give up simplistic notions, naive, simplistic notions of rationality. Okay, I'm not accusing Stanovich of this, not at all. But what I'm saying is, we have to, it is, it, it, being rational is a very complex process in which there are trade-off relationships and a very complicated kind of optimization needs to be trained. So, we want active open-mindedness to, let's, let's, let's make this the error of interference. So, sometimes I leap to conclusions and that causes a lot of mistake in inference, the kind of stuff that Stanovich, and what I need is active open-mindedness to moderate that and ameliorate it in a significant degree. Right? But I want to I leap to insight. And I need that for good control. And good control is central to being a problem solver, central to being rational. So what do I need? Well, it's interesting because if you turn to a domain outside of the academic domain, and, and, and right, we, we, we have to, because rationality is existential, we have to pay attention to the context even in which we're theorizing about rationality. Right? And if we're in a largely academic context, we're going to think of rationality as primarily about theorizing. And so this is a great danger to theorizing. And so I would argue, if the rationality, if the project you're engaging in rationality is the project of theorizing, and I mean that broadly in the sense of generating scientific you know, or historical theory, Right? then active open-mindedness is crucial. But there are domains where it goes the other way. There's domains in which what you, do not, what you need right, is you need to be able to come up with a transformative insight where you need a radical reconstruel of the problem or the issue, where that's crucial because you're somehow locked in. Where's the domain and where that's crucial? Well, we've talked about it. So, this is good for theorizing. But Jacobs, in his book, and you can see some uh, related work by uh, Teasdale, points out there's an opposite context. There's the context not of theory, but there's the context of therapy. Right? I think it's broader than this, but I'm using this because it's a good contrast, and the, the, right, the, 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 there's an alliterative relation to help uh, for mnemonic purposes. So in therapy, very often what's needed is, and we've talked about this, remember, you're existentially trapped and you need this fundamental kind of transformative insight and you cannot infer your way through it. We've already tackled that argument in detail. You cannot infer your way through it. And the problem in therapy is people try to think their way through it. That's Jacob's main point and I say a related, in the, a book called The Ancestral Mind. And this, the same point is being made 
And I think by Teasdale when he talks about metacognitive insight being central to therapy. Right? Often what you need is to try and shut this down, try to trigger this, I mean think of fright and free association. Right? You have to try and shut this down, prevent it from interfering, right? Bring this into the foreground. Keep this in the background. So when we're theorizing, we need this in the foreground and we need it protected. We need it to seriously background and constrain this, active open-mindedness in doing this. But in the therapeutic situation, this needs to be much more foregrounded, this needs to be backgrounded, and it needs, to, we, it needs to be constrained so it doesn't unduly interfere with this. Now, we, what we can ask ourselves is, well, what's a cognitive style right, that makes this much more focal, tries to constrain this, and really improves insight? Well, we know what that is. And Teasdale, in fact, argues for it explicitly as what triggers metacognitive insight. That's mindfulness. You think about how much in a mindful, in a mindfulness practice, I've tried to argue that there, we need an ecology of psychotechnologies to cultivate the cognitive style of mindfulness, right? Think of one, think of meditation. Think of how much in meditation you are trying to, right, really constrain this, shut this down, reduce all that inner speech, all that inferential processing, the deliberate direction, right? And you're trying to open this up in a very powerful way. So notice that I now have, right, a cognitive style that is in a very important sense opponent, not adversarial, but opponent to active open-mindedness. Uh, notice that they are both sh sharing the training of attention and what you're paying attention to and how you're paying attention. So, this is great for planning. And this, as I said, this is great for coping. And especially when the planning is epistemic, when we're trying to theorize, when we're planning for truth. This is very good for coping especially when we're doing a kind of coping that's therapeutic in a broad sense, in which we are needing to transform and un undergo important qualitative development. So, I think what's missing from Stanovich is a broader account of our competences and how they can uh, be, how they are played off against each other, how there's a trade-off relationship with them. And part of what I would argue, and I'm going to come back to this more, uh, um, more directly later, what goes into wisdom is a cultivation of both active open-mindedness for inference and mindfulness for insight. And then what we're going to need is, well, what, what coordinates them together? How are they coordinated together? How do I optimize the opponent, not adversarial, how do I optimize the opponent processing between them? I want to come back to that and explore that in detail with you. Yo, yo, yo. Break time. We're going to cover that past uh, 15, 20 minutes now. And catch ourselves up. <coughs>
So we're looking for, uh, Stanovich was looking for a positive account of rationality. So the dual, pro uh, dual processing. We um, noticed lots of convergence around the, this dual processing theory that recognizes different ways of processing information that we have. We have this S1 system and this S2 system. So, and, and before we get into that, mm -hmm. Verveke made it pretty clear that, you know, he's trying to get at how they're not separate, discrete things, mm -hmm. like what Stanovich is, is, I don't want to say alluded to, but where his point was at. Mm -hmm. So what we're doing now is... Yeah, Verveke's adding a little spin to this theory of his own now. Yeah. And, and recognizing that these appear to be in an opponent processing. This yeah. is another part of the relevance realizations calibration process. So S1 is your intuitive, um, implicit processing. It's fast. Yeah. It's a coping. It's associative. It's involved in, in salient. Salient um, landscaping. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, and then S2 is very deliberate, mm -hmm. um, inferential, uh, argument, argumentative, but not in the sense of, you know, arguing with somebody. Yeah, not personally, but informationally um, it's, within oneself. Yeah. It's explicit and slow. So yep. that yep. is your working memory side. And then the S1 is your automatic side. So yeah. it's, it's, it's leaping versus sitting and thinking. That's right. right. The S2 yeah. is much, much more working memory mm -hmm. reliant. The S1 processing is much more automatic and intuitive within us. It requires less it's or it's we could say it's less reliant on working memory and it certainly is much more about coping and caring kind yeah. of orientation to it where the s2 is more like very focused directed yeah so you know in, in its own way event looking for truth basically yeah so the example he gave is you know like you're you go to the grocery store you get uh, uh, you know, your normal, whatever, bread, elk, uh, milk, eggs. Mm -hmm. um, and the cashier says, oh, $1,000. And you're like, what? And that immediate what is your S1, your intuitive going, no, 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 no. Yeah. No, hold on. You know, and before thinking of, this is before thinking of, this no, normally you. this only costs me 15 bucks or however much. It's a, it's a very immediate, just like, what? That's right. And then the cashier, what the cashier has to do is S2, very deliberately go through each, you know, the, well, you know, yeah. this thing costs this much and this costs this much and this costs this much. Mm -hmm. So what, but that takes a really long time. That takes a lot longer, but the S1 is it's intuitive and it's very immediate. It's very fast. Yeah. Process. So what yeah. S2 is doing for S1 is overriding S1 yes. in a corrective manner. It has a corrective function to it. Yeah. Because, yes. you know, okay, instead of saying a thousand bucks, it's like, you know, you, you come back a month and buy the same stuff that cost you 75 bucks and now it costs 150 yeah. And then you go through the receipt and you're like, damn, it actually is that much. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so the S2 is verifying. So, it's really good at checking. Um, you know, we can't rely on S2 all the time because for most behavior because it's so slow. Yeah. But the S2 is very important. It can help check and override the S1 processing in an opponent processing relationship, which, as Braveki notes, is not adversarial. It's merely a trade off relationship mm -hmm. that. It's just like a camera lens can focus in and you know zoom in and zoom out to maintain the optimal focus. That's it's just in an opponent processing relationship. And so S2 has this corrective function, and yeah, go ahead there. The, well, the 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 dance between the two is what, um, uh, what is it? Um, the open mindedness, the active, active open, open mindedness. mindedness. That's what it's doing. It's you know, 
it's mediating between you know the the, mm-hmm. the shouting at you just you know leaping and and mm-hmm. what overrides the leaping to conclusions and yeah so it's both the, what, what allows us to leap to conclusions and then what can also check them so it's that whole process yeah so verveke's criticism of this is it's really not enough because in some cases leaping um isn't a bad thing um and he uses the term his term cognitive leak leap uh leaping which there's yes. tests for you know you show a bunch of patterns that are building into something and you stop and you ask them what 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 what's it supposed to be what's the next thing so in the case there's a bunch of dots making a couch mm-hmm. um and if you're you know if you're good at that and reliable then you're a good leaper and we need to be good leapers yeah if you can see just very few cues and infer properly or reliably then your pattern recognition uh to pattern completion is on point you know to be better at leaping is to be better at insight and thus rationality if we cut off the leaping entirely we lose our capacity for rationality which requires so much insight so there's these trade-off relations um and they're very complex optimizations that we can go through um to increase our capacity for wisdom here um and now let me back up a little bit yeah, just so th- active open-mindedness it's teaching us to protect processing from being overrided complete all the time by our capacity by our capacity for self-deception basically yeah. so we need both competencies for cognition to function properly leaping to conclusions not always bad it helps us move fast inductive leaping uh, is perhaps a mistaken term. That's where Verbeke gives us the cognitive yeah. leapings that kind of and, and stitches s- things together a little bit. So, you know, S1 and S2 are both good in two different ends, and, and those are theory and therapy, right? So in yeah. the therapy end, um, uh, it, you know, um, oh, here, hold on. Uh, wrong page. Let me, let me get to that. Well, so, so basically, there are existential uh, implications, and that's why... This isn't just used for theorizing. It can be used for ther- therapy as well, and that and we need to recognize that. Well, so like in therapy, you don't want to be an S2 mind because you don't talk yourself through Yeah, therapy. we want to see it's rationality beyond theorizing. Yeah. Because rationality is used for our own existence, for our own inner lives as but well. Then we also yeah. need to be able to properly theorize as well, and much That's, like your that autonomic do. nervous system that stimulates you optimally depending on the circumstance I guess active so active open mindedness is like that. Is it meditation is one aspect of mindfulness practices that help us be more actively aware, so we can catch ourselves as we're watching that open minded process Mm -hmm. go on. We can be active and catch it when it's too open minded, because overleaping can lead to missed inferences. So we need good control, Mm -hmm. and thus we need to be able to see that rationality is beyond just theorizing and know when to foreground s2 for theorizing or foreground s1 for uh personal self-growth and transformation yeah we need a better better uh, sandovich as well as us need a better account of the trade-off relationship that's right because it has existential implications yeah Yeah. so like we need to we need to optimize this opponent processing relationship because it's not about maximizing or minimizing. It's about depending on the circumstance. If you're in Which, therapy, you need to be a little bit more. How much to S1. zoom in or how if much to zoom be, out. That's right. If you need to like, create a theory about, I don't know, something, you know, something fancy, you know, some science mm-hmm. stuff, you kind of need to be S2. You need to you need, like take yeah. your time, work through it deliberately. And, but, you know, sometimes that S1 allows you to leap and be like, ah, I see the pattern. That's Let right. Me jump into That's this right. as well. Yeah. Beyond, you know, so S1, beyond therapy is therapy. 
which we can't infer, we can't think through to solve something that's a therapeutic issue. In therapy, we need to shut down the S2 process in large part, put it in the background and constrain it to foreground the S1. And then we need to do the opposite for theorizing, like you were saying. We need to be able to put the S1 in the mm -hmm. background so that we can deliberately go through the data and check our calculations. Yeah. And, and, and it's backgrounded, not gotten rid of, you know, right. like even, you know, a picture, there's things in the foreground and things in the background without the background the foreground just like you constrain sense. your eyes when you're trying to see something yeah. in low light you yeah. know it's the same thing so mindfulness practices medita meditation is is uh something that helps us develop our overall mindfulness meditation constrains the s2 processing to open up our s1 processing in a powerful way and that's uh so meditation we would call a cognitive style that helps aid in mindfulness and the opposite end of that would be um contemplation if we're talking you know way back mm -hmm. to the beginning in the non-dual state and scaling up and scaling down of your attention um the other end would be contemplation where you focus on your s2 yes deliberately go through it and you know but you you need to be doing both i won't say at the same time but at the same time in appropriate amount, amounts mm -hmm. for what mm -hmm. you're trying to do. So if you're actually trying to like get yourself out of the rut of overthinking and all that stuff, well, go meditate, go meditate, go do that. You know, cause you're, but if you're having trouble connecting with the wider world, yeah. go out to yeah. a temple or to a church and contemplate the word temple is right there and contemplate. It's like a collective. Well, in the case of a church or a yeah. temple, it is a collective commune communion with the outer reality and uh, reverence in a reverential sort of way yep so up and out and down and in so there's the out there's the in that's it the opponent processing is all over the place here so we see relevance realization everywhere this is so cool so s2 is really good for planning and when you're aiming for truth when you're theorizing s1's great for coping with situations caring Interesting. That you care about uh, when we need to transform and develop ourselves qualitatively. Yeah. So that like word quality wise coping is an interesting word because um, like so there's something called a coping saw. It's a very narrow blade. And what it's used for is when you're putting in molding, you're able to cut around things in order. And the saw fits within the cut in the shape that you need to cut. So you, mm -hmm. the thing you're putting in fits in. Coping is a way that. We yeah, mold ourselves yeah, to fit, yeah, if you will. Yeah. Um, it, it's just interesting how it's the like, words like work. Like we conform and, you know, to reality. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. And yeah, when you overconform, we have a term for that, conformist, which has yeah. a negative connotation. But we're always trying to conform ourselves to yeah. reality in a way that uh, allows for the you know the furthering of our organism. Yeah, because you could. Like, you need to be able to do that to cope with reality. Yeah, to yeah. cope with reality, and in like in the negative way of like you know it's my coping mechanism. It's a cope. Yeah. Well, why are you doing that? Okay, because there's something that happened or a stimulus or something that and we you have need a term to for deal that. with. Yeah. And you need to yes. wrap yourself around it That's right. or shy away and from it. And when people or, are overdoing you know, that yeah. more than they need to, we call it a cope, you yeah, know? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's interesting how we how we have these social ways of picking up on well, the errors that we can make. You know, they say Jesus was a carpenter, or at least his dad was. Some say they're stonemasons, but either way, it's funny how words work. Like uh, coping molding hmm. it doesn't seem like it'd be real why do they call it a coping saw i don't know i they're I may be wrong but there's something core to the that word no no you're right because it is it helps you conform place. and fit too it, yeah. yeah you're right 
and particularly in corners yeah. or where, where things join. Yeah. I don't know. You know. I don't know. Either. Agent that's Arena. Cool, though. That's, that's an interesting <laughs> thought there. All right, guys, we are jumping back in to episode 42 of John Verbeke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. Let's go. Because I can't push this any farther because as we, as we push this farther, we're getting farther and farther away from Stanley's theory and moving in towards a theory uh, that I myself am going to propose to you, the work I've done with Leo Ferraro, and then um, sort of critically reflect on that. So I, I, will, I need you to remember this for when we come back more explicitly talk about a theory of wisdom. And to be fair to Stanovich, he's ultimately not offering a theory of wisdom. And I think when he talks about rationality, he really means theoretical rationality, as opposed to what we might call practical or therapeutic uh, rationality. Okay. I want to stop here, though, and note it, and, and, and continue on with our investigation now of explicit theories of wisdom. But I want to sort of pull one thing out of our discussion from Stanovich before we leave uh, Stanovich's good company. And I want to use somebody else's work to extend that a bit and to just add more teeth to this claim that rationality is ultimately an existential issue. A way of understanding what Stanovich says is the following. Right? When I use in intelligence to learn the psychotech and the cognitive style, I can use intelligence to actually improve how I'm using my intelligence. I can use my intelligence to improve right, how the competencies are optimizing, and I can therefore overall enhance my capacity for relevance realization. We can think of that as rationality. But something else is emerging, right, out of this, which I'm only suggesting now, but we may perhaps be able to use our rationality to improve our rationality, to make it more optimal overall. And I would suggest to you that's going to be crucial to wisdom. That's going to be a, a, an essential feature, I would, I would argue. Not everybody agrees with me on this. I'm trying to be really clear about this. But I would argue that that is a, 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 a place in which we can find the locus for understanding uh, the nature of wisdom, how it relates to rationality and how it relates uh, to intelligence. What the nature of this is, uh, we're going to have to come back to one more time. Please remember when you see this word that I am not equating it to logicality or intelligence. I've given you long arguments about and I've tried to expand this notion. It's as much more about the reliable and systematic ability to overcome self-deception and to afford the enhancement of development and meaning in life. That's what I mean by it. Okay, so let's keep this in mind. Let's take some time now right, to take a look at some more explicit theories of wisdom. I can't look at them all. This is a... This is a growth industry. I'm going to a conference uh, tomorrow that has a lot of the people that are working in this, and it's going to be a discussion to try and see if we can come to some consensus about this, be precisely because it is such an important topic. A lot of good work has been done on it, uh, but again, because there is such a multitude of viewpoints, 
uh, getting a clear consensus on this um, is going to be uh, is going to be a, a theoretical challenge. Okay. Now the I want to, as I said, do one more thing before I do that. Before I move to the explicit theories, and I want to show you, I want to show you a bit about this. And the point about this is to bring out something that Stanovich is not addressing, which is the existential aspect of rationality, the degree to which we identify with our higher cognitive processes. Okay, so this is the work of Dweck, Carol Dweck, and work on mindset. There's a book entitled that. And this, of course, is again an ongoing thing. It's been taking up in a lot of different research. So I want to describe an experiment to you. And, and then I, I want to sort of challenge a little bit a, a potential ambiguity or confusion in, in Dweck that I think we can clarify uh, by making use of this work from Stanovich. So Dweck did the following thing. She, she brought uh, uh, he has a whole bunch of experiments, but let's uh, talk about one. She brought in a bunch of school children and she randomly assigned them to three groups group A, group B, and group C. Okay. Now, Dweck talks about two different ways in which you can set your mind towards. Your, your traits. And the trait that's really crucial here, and this is relevant, is intelligence. So she talks about two view, views you can have, two ways in which you can set your mind. Now it's a mindset because it's not just a belief, it's the way in which you're identifying with, right? It's the way in which you feel you are embodying the, the traits we're talking about. So you can have a fixed view of your intelligence or a malleable view. And so in the fixed view, you think intelligence is like fixed, basically, at sort of birth or early on. And then once it's locked in, there's not much you can do with it. So for example, my height is a fixed trait. There's not a lot I can do to modify it. It's a fixed trait, OK? My weight is a much more malleable trait. I can change, it can, it's quite variable. It can change quite a bit. So you may think that intelligence is more like my height. You're sort of born with it. You're fixed. You've got this number assigned, and that's it. Or intelligence is malleable. It can develop and change. Now, notice your behavior is going to be different if you think intelligence is fixed. If you think intelligence is fixed, your attitude towards error is that error will reveal that you have a defect in a non-changeable trait. It'll reveal, it'll, it'll permanently disclose that you're not smart. So fixed intelligence tends to turn error into permanent revelation. Right? If I make mistakes, that will show that I have low intelligence, and once once everybody knows that, including myself, there's nothing I can do about it, and then I'm doomed to being a stupid person. 
Okay? If you have the malleable view of intelligence, error doesn't, right? Error doesn't do that for you. Error doesn't see. Error is now, oh, wait. Error points towards the skills I'm using. I need better skills or the effort I'm putting in. I need to put in more effort because if it's malleable, I can do things to change it. So the error says, the error is basically pointing, you need to make some changes. You need to cultivate more skills. You need to cultivate more, more effort. Now notice something right away, please. Notice how the fixed view focuses you on the product, right? It focuses you on, right? You just get fixated on the error. Oh no! This focuses you, remember the key of rationality? It focuses you on the process. The process. Okay, so she has a lot of experiments showing that, right, the fixed view and the malleable view have a huge impact on your behavior. But interesting thing, the way, how, could, how can you trigger people into this mode? Well, if you're in sort of an authority position, like, like, like being a teacher at a school, the one way you can trigger the mode, and this is really a mode, right? The mode that people are in is how you praise them the kind of feedback you give them. If I praise you using trait language, like you're so smart, you're so bright, that's going to tend to trigger this orientation. If I praise you for the process, wow, you're, really, you're using a really good skill, you're putting in a lot of effort for that, that's going to make the process salient to you. The more I make this salient, the more you're going to be in that mode, the more I make this salient, the more you're going to be in that mode. Okay, so I can praise the trait, right? Or I can praise the process. Think about how important this is to parenting or schooling. Okay, so let's go back to the experiment. We have th these three groups. The C group is the control group. They're all given a set of problems that have been pre-tested for, I think they were grade four. They could all solve these problems. They're challenging, but they're all solvable. And they all solve them. So all groups solve them, but group A is praised for its trait, group a, a B is praised for the process, and then group C is given the neutral just acknowledgement of, oh, the praise is, you succeeded so well in that problem, okay? So neutral. So the idea is this is going to trigger right, these people into the fixed view. This is going to trigger people into the malleable view. So now what you do is you give the kids a bunch of tests. You ask which ones want to take on some more challenging problems. Notice what I'm doing here. I'm looking for need for cognition, looking for need for cognition. And what I find is this group, yeah. Oh, sorry, that was completely wrong. This group says, no, I don't want to try harder problems. Why? Because if they try harder problems, there's a very good chance that they will generate error, and then error will generate right the recognition that they're less intelligent, and then they're permanently stained with that, permanently marked. The process people say, yeah, I'd like to try harder problems. They have a need for cognition. Seems to be triggered. Of course, neutral, right? Then you give them some harder problems and ask, do they enjoy them or not? B, oh, do not enjoy this. Yeah, I, I enjoy this, neutral. Right. Now, 
here's the crucial thing. Now you give them a set of problems that were equal in difficulty to the first set of problems. You get a, give them a set of problems that were equal in difficulty to the first set of problems. This has all been massively pretested, so it's safe. Right? And what you find is this group does about the same, this group does much worse, and this group does better than it did before. And now I want, to, I want to extend this. And notice how this is starting to fold into a kind of self-deception, right? You ask these kids to write to, um, I believe the experiment was done in America, you ask these people to write to a, a student in Germany that they'll never, they will never meet, by the way, and report how they did on the experiment. So these two groups, right, largely tell the truth. They just, you know, 40% of these people lie about their performance. Okay. What am I trying to show you? I'm trying to show you the way you frame yourself, the way you identify with your processing has a huge impact on your problem-solving ability, your proclivity for self-deception, and your need for cognition. Rationality is an existential thing. It is not just an informational processing thing. Now, one thing that comes out of this is the question, yeah, but is intelligence fixed or malleable? And, and, and Dweck is not quite clear about that. The evidence is pretty clear that there's a few things you can do to modify your intelligence. There's some suggestion that long-term mindfulness practice by enhancing attention and working memory can improve your, your measures of general intelligence. But by and large, intelligence is, is fixed. It's not that malleable. And then you may say, oh, then this whole thing is based on you know, lying to the kids, right? basically, getting them to relate to intelligence as something malleable. Not really. Not really at all. <clears throat> because what we're, what we're actually talking about here, and that's what I've been continually alluding to here, is that something that is terrifically, there's a way in which intelligence is terrifically malleable. And this is exactly what mindsetting is. The way in which intelligence recursively relates to itself is a way in which we can think about it being rational, but that might, sorry, a way in which we can think about it being malleable. And you, my word slip shows you what my thinking is. A better way of talking about this is that intelligence is fixed, and this is what, what Stanovich argues, but rationality is highly malleable. And then here's Stanovich's main point about this. We care too much for intelligence and not enough for rationality. Because, yes, intelligence is highly predictive of all these things, and that's why measurements of G are such powerful predictors. But if I wanted to know something about you, now following Stanovich's argument, I want to know not how intelligent you are, I want to know how rational you are. And that is highly malleable. Okay, so what I'm trying to show you is this, this, that rationality is a, an existential issue. It's about how you're identifying with your own cognitive processing, and the way in which that identification process can impede 
how you're applying and using your intelligence, or it can enhance it. And then there's the possibility, right, of cultivating the right kind of recursion and identity, the right kinds of cognitive styles. So somehow we have to put processes of identification, processes of coordinating cognitive styles together, and we can get a clear path for becoming much more rational. And as I'm suggesting to you, therefore, much more wise. Because if we, if we use rationality to better learn how to use rationality and identify with our rationality, then of course, I'm suggesting to you that's wisdom. And as I promised, we should now next, we should now turn to some of the explicit psychological theories of wisdom. Now I can't, as I've already mentioned, I can't do all of them. I'm going to zero in on um, four theories that I think are quite representative of, of central ideas in the psychology of wisdom. I, and then I will then propose, I'll put my, I'll propose my theory, the work I've done with Leo Ferraro, and I'll put that into sort of dialogue with these existing theories, as well as critiquing uh, the, uh, the theory that I, uh, the work that I did with uh, Leo. And then ultimately what we want to do is resituate that account of wisdom, right, into its connection with the cultivation of meaning and the pursuit of enlightenment. We will take a look at that next time. Thank you very much for your time and attention. Meow, 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 meow. Rough. Rough, rough, rough. Rough. Rough, rough, rough. Rough. Rough, rough, rough. Wow, rough. Wow, rough. I yeah. <laughs> thought I'd uh, be a little different this time instead of just saying meow. I like the grumpy cat meows, but the grumpy, grumpy pup, that's good. That works I, I was too. hanging out with my dad's dog for a few days, so, you know. Except she doesn't go rough. She's small and she's half Dotson and she half Chihuahua. So a little deeper than any yap, but yeah. Yep. No, more like a. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> she harumphs. Oh uh, yeah, when I mean, she when I'm too much for her, she's starting to grumble. So I gotta I gotta teach her how to take a little picking on and then give me proper noises instead of just growling at me to be like, hey, you know, come on, leave me alone. <laughs> yeah, gotta, be polite, doggy jeez. Uh, and also be able to tell me when she's had had enough without just growling because it's like, oh, if you're growling, it means you want to play. <laughs> hey, buddy. <laughs> I got. She doesn't have an annoying dog friend, so I got to be her annoying dog friend. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so intelligence can enhance uh, relevance realization. So that is rationality, and rationality can be used to improve rationality. Well, here let's let's go deeper on it. Yeah. So we can use intelligence to improve how we use intelligence itself. Yeah. And basically, there are many competencies that go into our intelligence, and we can optimize those. So our intelligence is very malleable, and we're going to wrap up with that, too. So intelligence being used to improve itself is rationality. Yeah. And rationality, which we may be able to use in the same way as we're using intelligence to upgrade itself, we can use rationality to help ourselves be more further more rational, which would be crucial to the development of wisdom. Well, so the r further rationalization of rationality leads us to wisdom. Well, and, and, a a locus, sense, and a locus for understanding wisdom as it relates to rationality and intelligence.
as far as like you know like using the thing or say the skill to improve the skill that does make sense mm-hmm. the more you practice something whether you're an athlete a musician or whatever that helps you even more improve yourself mm-hmm. your intelligence at whatever activity you're working on and not just doing the thing by rote but actually practicing that's right you know? and so optimizing this process through rationality is more about our capacity to overcome self-deception and to expand our sense of meaning in life so intelligence mindset we get into uh, the work of carol dweck and she gave us two ways of looking at mindset, a fixed view and a malleable view. Yeah, so a fixed view is things from birth, like, you know, your height, mm-hmm. um, you know, your, your height, the color of your eyes, stuff like that, an immutable trait. Whereas the malleable view would be like your weight mm-hmm. or how tan you are or, you know, how short your hair is or you know, right. something like that. It, right. it, it changes. It is malleable. So there's two different ways of looking at intelligence out there. And the fixed view of intelligence really focuses on the product yeah. of intelligence itself or the errors that we make. And um, the errors reveal that you, that you know, if you have the fixed view, then you think that an error reveals you have a defect in a non-changeable yeah. way. Yeah. It, it, yeah, it turns it, error into a permanent revelation and a defect in a trait mm-hmm. um, that's permanent. So yes. you know, in this case of intelligence, well, I'm just stupid. the The malleable view is the error points to the skills or effort. So if you're not, mm-hmm. if you're not, if you're not, in this sense, if you're not behaving intelligently, well, you you must lack the skills, or you're just not trying hard. Yeah, enough. so you're basically focusing on the error. Um. You know, and t- to tell yourself that you're wrong and that you can't change. You know, I'm stupid because of the mistake that I made. So you're focused yeah, on the mistake. Yeah, that would be the fixed view. And that's that, the yeah, fixed that's view. The, that's the Thinks product. You can't change it. I'm just dumb. Yeah. But the malleable view of intelligence well, I can, uh, I can takes error harder, as, you know? yeah, pointing us to more effort and skill acquisition. You know, it's, it's change-oriented. It focuses on the process. It's like, oh, I must have done something wrong. I wonder where I went wrong. Let me see, and then let me fix that. So how to, how to, you know, trigger a response in people, mm-hmm. um, depends on how you praise them. Is, yes. It, yeah. Yeah. So it's, you're so smart. You're so smart. It's just like, well, that's just the product of some trait. Okay, yeah. Oh, yeah, you're great. so talented. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you're so smart. Or, instant. oh, you're so fast. But, that's why you won the race. It's that, that's a horrible way. And then Jordan Peterson actually yeah. focuses on this a lot. It's like. You know, basically praising children this way stunts their mm-hmm. capacities sure. and their potential for growth. It but may, if it, you tell them, you, if you focus on the process, so we praise them for the process, your hard work really paid off. Yeah. The way that you applied yourself yeah. to this and how much good work you really put in, I know that was hard for you, but wow, look at, look at this success. Look at what you accomplished. You did this because of your hard work. Focusing on the process is so encouraging. Oh, you're doing so up. much better than last week. There's no week. limit. There's no peak yeah, yeah. to your potential from this perspective. So um, what Dweck did is made an experiment with three groups of kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so during these, te- you know, and the, the problems were solved, like all, all the kids were capable of solving them. So it wasn't necessarily a measure of the intelligence of the children, more the measure of the response according to stimulus. Mm-hmm. And the stimulus was... After completing a set of problems, one set you would say, "Oh, you guys are super smart. You're just top notch. You know, you're 
best around. Yeah, you guys Nobody are so intelligent. You, down, you know, no wonder you got such a high score. And then the B group was, you know, the the the, the malleable end of it. That uh, like, oh man, you guys really worked through that. And, you know, yeah, really you're, I can tell through, you were working you know? hard on that. Yeah. You did a good job thinking that. Through. And then the C group is just like, yeah, you got it right. Or yeah. you got this one wrong. So either you're being encouraged for some yeah. static trait, your intelligence, or you're being encouraged for the process, yeah. the way you pr- yeah. you you approached something, and the heart and the amount of effort you put into yeah. it, or you're just being a you're being praised neutral. And I think the neutral. So something interesting so, about the neutral, and once once we get to this part, yeah. I'll bring it up again. But the neutral seems like it's like oh a test group, but it actually says a lot for the last response. But basically, okay. Yeah. Then there's the second part to this: is you ask the kids. Okay, who wants to, you know, go on to some harder problems? Mm-hmm. The group A kids who, you know, the, the fixed trait kids who are just, you're so smart. We're, we're like, nah. So yeah, no, because they're afraid of being wrong if, since they're well, harder I, problems. I'm this smart and there's no going above that. Yeah, so very self-referential in this yeah. way that its view of its intelligence is based off Well, of, if I did good on these, I did, these were tough, man. And, like, I don't know if I could, you yeah. know, be smart on the next ones and then it'll show yeah. actually I'm, I'm so I'm they're very only focused yeah. on the products they can achieve yeah so the second yeah. kids the uh, second group of kids which were the that ones we that praised were like, for their process for the amount of they effort, were like sure yeah let's work. do it they were excited I, we can work it through we can do better next time yep and then you ask well you know who'd enjoyed it and group a kids didn't enjoy it the group b nope. and c kids tended well the c kids tended to more enjoy it and the group, uh, well, group both, a. both group Neutrally B and C, it, yeah. you know, enjoyed it. But then B you, enjoyed it the most yeah. and actually had an interest in try, taking yeah. on those harder problems. So that need for cognition yeah. was actually encouraged. Yeah, whereas group C is just like, no, okay. So they were eager know. to do them. And, and <laughs> C was like kind of neutral about it. So, yeah. okay. I, I get out of class for this. Let's go. Yeah. Um, and then, then you give them problems that are just as hard as the first problems, right? And <laughs> and group B does better than group A. Yeah. And also, um, to a certain extent, I would, you know, I don't know if he goes over Cause this. Because we, fa- we praised the process, which is actually how you solve a problem. Yeah. And we gave them encouragement in that way. So they focused their attention on the processing of the problem rather than just hard problem. And here's my level of intelligence yeah, yeah. versus this hard problem. And then... The final component to this is you ask them about how they felt about it. In group two and three, it, it, it's not necessarily a matter of whether they liked it or not. It was whether they're honest and they told the truth. Oh, yeah. So they were basically told, hey, there's some guy in Germany. You're going to tell him about yeah. you know, your study. He's an exchange yeah. student or something like that. And you're going to tell him about how you enjoyed the study. And yeah, group A didn't enjoy the study. Group B enjoyed well, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. They, and they described that. They, they enjoyed it. Yeah, that, and um, so then... Yeah, 40% of the trait focused, so the intelligence focused... Lied. Lied about their success at the problems. That's yeah. right. Uh, oh, they lied yeah. about their success when they were asked to tell someone about it. Oh, yeah. And, then, then, then the uh, ones that we focus on process with, the actual amount of work that they put into it and their effort, uh, they... They told the truth. Yeah, that's yeah, whether that's, they did well or not. They told the truth. At, but yeah. the interesting point in this is group B, or group uh, C. C. So the third group. Sorry, I went from numbers to letters yeah. on my um, words. It's simple. Uh, group C, group three. Um, they also told the truth. So that leads me to believe that praising the fixed trait is actually detrimental, because if the neutral group 
yeah. didn't feel like they had yeah. to lie still there's something that goes on with having somebody have a fixed yeah um mindset yeah so when we're teaching or we're parenting or in some mm-hmm. kind of authority or eldership role we should not be encouraging trying to encourage our our children or our acolytes or students by telling them oh you're so smart that's why you could solve this problem or oh you're so fast that's why you won the race we should always be focusing on the process your effort your hard work your stick-to-itiveness your determination or just good work buddy yes and, yeah. that, it's that good simple work. though oh, it's work. on the process yeah, it's on the process yeah. of the actual work and effort that so maybe one it. of the worst things you can tell your daughters is and then you enjoy so the pretty. process then you enjoy the process too you know you enjoy the hard work so whatever you're training for be it a marathon or for a mm-hmm. You know, well, even imagine this, like, you know, like when you tell your daughter, you're so pretty. Mm-hmm. What is that doing? Now being like, I really like your shoes and your dress that you put on today, or you hold yourself very I, I really well. like the poise yeah. that you hold yourself with. That would probably be a much yeah. better I love, I, just I really you're pre- pretty. I, I, I like the way that you care for yourself. You do a good job of caring Well, when talking to the lady folks, just telling them, oh, you look so beautiful. Your exercise. Work. But when you're like, hey, you really cut your a rug process, out there, they're like, oh. Your exercise you know? and your yeah. eating well is, has, <laughs> has helped you be so beautiful. You know? <laughs> so, your, your attitude. It makes you so beautiful. The way you act, the I, way you are, is beautiful because, and it's, you always name the process. Yeah, that's, or, it's that simple. Or if you're an old, you know, your old granny, it's like you're too skinny. You need to eat, <laughs> and it's not you're born skinny because she wants, or it's not that you're, you know, fixed skinny. She wants to fatten you up. Yeah, and she thinks yeah, you're yeah, yeah. starving yourself. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. even in criticisms, you know, it, it still actually, is encouraging. Isn't it? Criticisms too is like instead of just being like, "Oh, you suck," but it is. Yeah, you're right. dumb. Instead of saying you're dumb, you maybe approach this problem. Oh, you never the wrong way. Yeah, or there, maybe you could try another way. Or of hey, man, you might want to like spend more time on it, yeah. or you or know. try and just breathe for a second. You know, yeah. anything like that that helps you get back into mm-hmm. the bean mode. So the question is: Is intelligence fixed or is it malleable? Because mm-hmm. intelligence seems to be fixed and may very well be, but it also seems to be malleable. And so that's the so and that's it. The way that intelligence recursively relates to itself is highly malleable. So even if you only have a certain amount of overall intelligence, how are you using that that's intelligence? The rationality yeah. is the, the the malleable and the intelligence. And so is apparently you can increase your general intelligence by using intelligence to recursively relate to itself and upgrade itself in well, that way you know, to optimize it. And and they're like, you know, I know this is controversial, you but see, if both you get your, more horsepower out, out of your engine. If both your parents are very, very like highly intelligent and have very well functioning brains, chances are you'll probably too. Maybe not all the times, but there's a better chance of that. The well functioning. But is that up doesn't to yes, exactly. Education. That doesn't mean you're going to be able to use any of it mm-hmm. and there's been you know like uh, you know, uh, yeah you have reading, to train the capacity reading some thomas soul and you know like back back in the iq wars if you will the you know where we we're applying iq to race and all that crazy stuff they weren't accounting for different education styles and education levels when they were taking the military iq tests mm. um and if they did like so like in the in the northern areas and people who are educated in the ohio universities you saw amongst the black population at level with their white peers or exceeding whereas in the south which you know i'm not going to get into the whole cultural end of, of that book that um sal wrote 
But in the South, they didn't have the same education levels or value levels for gaining intelligence and working on it. So it really skewed mm-hmm. the numbers. And they were and probably so, smart about different well, things. And then there was people who were like, see, there's some genetic component and in inferiority because of race. And it was like, no, you weren't accounting for education levels because then if you just mm-hmm. went to the North and the thing in the South too, there was just more white people, in, white people in the North. Different cultures. Proportionately. So mm-hmm. it averaged out to a more even average, whereas there was less black people in the North at the time than in the South by proportion. So it made it look like a lower IQ. Mm-hmm. It's not a problem with the IQ test. It's a problem with accounting for, you know, different uh, modes of uh, being uh, and yeah, different kinds of intelligence. Yeah, upbringing value of educating yeah. oneself, actually going through it, demands of parents demanding that you do it. And what are and, the test you know. questions looking for? Yeah, you know, they're looking well, for sure. specific things. They, they can't cover the whole field of intelligence that well, people no, might have and, access and, to. And IQ tests are actually pretty good because what they do is they take, but they miss a lot too. Well, they, they, they don't. They, yet again, they don't necessarily account at all for you know the environment. You know your learning environment. It's very much your S two process. How you were praised, right? You know, how, it's, you know. it's very much your S two processing that it's yeah. tracking. It's your working memory mostly. Yeah. It's not your insight capacity or even your rationality. And like Verveke brought up in this video, if you had a choice and you had to spend time mm-hmm. with somebody, like working on something, for instance. Or do you prefer to be someone that's intelligent or rational? Yeah. And yeah. most of us are going to prefer to spend our time with someone that's rational because we know we can actually work with them or they're going to be reasonable. Well, and I think we can actually raise our IQ. Like, and I'm using that word as uh, like, you know, we can, ra- so, we hi- can raise the, Im- we can erase, yeah. uh, we can erase, we me. can raise, we can raise our general problem solving ability. Yes. Through nurturing, you know, insight and rationality yes. and doing that. So you can, it's seeming like you can actually make yourself smarter no matter where you start. There might be a maximum right. of how smart you can yeah, get. And how much of one's intelligence are we actually using when it's not sure. compartmentalized well, properly? I know, you know? a lot like of really smart disorganized. people are dumb. Yeah. Like dumb, dumb. Yeah, I'm dumb about stuff, you know, and then maybe I'm smart about other things. But, you know, we can all notice that within ourselves, too. So it's uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a capacity that we all have the potential to upgrade and to optimize at the very least yeah, how, well, how we're using it. And perhaps instead of worrying about... And, and the tests. The tests aren't testing for rationality. No. How good one is at problem solving yeah. and, and, and well, there very are, much of the tests. There's some of that. There are actually a lot of tests that are starting to do that and have been doing that in a certain way. But as far as what we're using... But like those old tests in the military that well, they're doing the, IQ the, studies those, off of. Well, the IQ, the IQ tests were actually good. It was the scientist analyzing the data... And not accounting for certain things. Right. That was well. Nowadays, we also recognize was. that IQ doesn't quantify one's overall intelligence well, as well actually, as we Actually, that's kind of that's well. I, I was kind of getting at this. So much of it relies on working memory. Your 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 base raw intelligence shouldn't necessarily be the only marker the for success right. because yeah. there are people who aren't super geniuses that have become extremely successful and created some of the things that are essential. Mm-hmm. For us flourishing as humans, mm-hmm. and you know they were no Stephen Hawking. Now, mind you, but they, they were wise or rational in some way, or worked really, really freaking hard and optimized and worked their really level hard, yeah. and style, if you will, of intelligence usage. You right. know, and because I don't like the idea of you know it's just like you're as smart as you're ever going to be. It's like I I never felt like I actually feel like I've been getting smarter, and it's not just more knowledge; it's the ability to use. That's the wisdom. Yeah, I felt mm. like the wisdom develops. Yeah. My access to work and memory seems to slowly depreciate over time. But 
the ability to use what I know and to self second guess, be willing to second guess myself to be less absolutely certain and more open ended, more open minded has helped me to recognize well, you develop problems. You develop skills to be able to deal with the working memory very network quickly as fast. that others don't see as as quickly sometimes, mm-hmm. and 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 it's helped me to, uh, to certainly to upgrade the use of my intelligence, what intelligence I have, and learn how to better, yeah. more properly Th- that's, apply it. Perhaps. That's that's the real key. It's yeah. not necessarily what the IQ test shows because you can have yes, having higher IQ is a marker and does have a pretty strong correlation. I don't know what it is at the moment to success. But just because you have it doesn't mean you're going to succeed. And to a certain point, you know, like once you're below 80, it becomes really hard for you to succeed. And are you going to be able to responsibly use it? Yeah, but like, you know, there's perfectly average IQ people that would like blow you out of the water with their understanding of like, say, like war history and other Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Mm -hmm. That, you know, like you're like. Oh Everyone's God. got something to teach, you man. Know, Everyone's like, got you can learn what? from every single person oh, that you meet out there, no matter how a good example much or less intelligent they are than you. The hillbilly redneck guy that can barely talk right and you know, Jethro or whatever, but can take apart your vehicle, put it to get back together, know exactly what parts you need, know how to find them, get mm-hmm. them, put them in, have it working better than ever, then write you up a bill of what you owe them, being able mm-hmm. to judge how much they should charge. And they seem like some stupid redneck that, you know. I don't think about too many complicated things, but I can sure as hell pull apart your Ford and put it back together. And it's just like, yeah, the level of intelligence to do that is unreal. But also, other than taking a IQ test, how do we socially gauge intelligence too? Because there there is something to be said. Well, we got to stop just measuring for intelligence, which is one of the things Ravik is well, pointing out to yeah, us. We but, are, we're so f- hyper-focused but, on intelligence, well, but we haven't been focused on but, rationality in but, our culture. Yes, but the sad, well, okay rationality and intelligence but the sad fact is on the immediate glance people Mm -hmm. do create assumptions about you know people are heuristics are there for a reason Mm -hmm. they can go out of whack but if you can learn how to speak the best you can so you can communicate properly and you can Mm -hmm. be taken seriously more clearly too yeah learn how to gauge social situations Mm -hmm. and dress to impress if you can Mm -hmm. you know if you don't have a sense of style i'm sorry but just the effort means a lot to people Mm -hmm. um you know you always see like you know the dark you know the dorky you know book nerd uh professor that shows up to the uh, you know coat and tie event with a a also helps you feel better about yourself sure yeah and it's important to put your best foot forward yes and present yourself and that that saying says a lot put your best foot forward put forward the best version of you because you need to take yourself seriously and you need to show people that you take yourself seriously to be taken seriously amen that's good that's good advice um, yeah, that and that that stuff. You're, if you're looking for that in the manosphere, you're gonna have to sift through a lot of bullcrap. But I do hear it in there. Take yourself seriously. Show in way like some people think cars and jewelry and the other stuff is the way that you show that you take yourself seriously. Okay, if that's your thing, cool. Show not tell though is a very important yeah, piece yeah of exactly because yeah. nobody cares about your story about how cool you are and who you met. If you show up in a Lamborghini with you yeah. know like, prove that you can actually yeah. do it. Not saying that's the way to go, but then other people will take you seriously. So if you do have something to say and you're trying to communicate, you have a more receptive interlocutor, mm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it, I, I want like, you know, particularly young men, like get your stuff together as best you can, guys. You can do it. It's not because, you know, 
there's anything It'll wrong. It'll increase there's your self-confidence, your sense of self-security. There's nothing permanently wrong with you guys. The partners you're looking for <laughs> are attracted to and these hey, things. Even if you don't want partners and you just want a better relationship with yourself and family, the world friends and, and your family self. and stuff, you can do it. But you got to care about yourself. Show, show people that you care about yourself. If you want to be happier you know. <laughs> and more yeah. at peace with life, take better care of oneself and if you yeah, want because we stop feel that shame and we get depressed yeah, yeah, when man. we don't take care of ourselves when we're not organizing our homes yeah, yeah, man. taking care of ourselves properly you start to feel more and more psychologically down about yourself and yeah that clean, projects you got to clean up your room eh <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> sorry exactly. i can't do a jordan peterson that's, yeah that's, and you know. don't try and solve the problems of the world before you've solved your own yeah. you know if you can solve your own home personal crises you're worth it you, you know can if you do can it. clean yourself up and clean up your room and clean up your home then okay you can go out there and start telling the world a little but, bit about how it could better operate and itself. also i know i spoke to the dudes but ladies too it, it's just applicable different and i'm not a lady so i don't know how that works well i know the physicalities of it but you know you know what i mean we don't know the experience of it. yes yeah yeah, yeah i don't have the gnosis i'm sorry <laughs> well on that note yeah we love you guys this has been a great episode yeah. And we so appreciate all of you joining us on this ongoing meaning making series. We are down to episode 43 next oh, week. Man. It's going to be on wisdom and virtue. And that sounds like it's going to be really profound. That's going to be fun. So only eight, looking forward to eight that. episodes left. Oh, we're probably going to start six yeah, uh, at six next week. That's yeah. Eastern Standard Time, 6 p.m. Um, yeah. You know, it, it'd be nice to get to bed a little bit earlier. And- yeah, I'm getting up earlier these days for work, yeah. and I know that you like to get to bed at a decent hour each night as well. So I try. Yeah, it'll it'll be a little bit easier for us. So we're gonna move it forward to uh, six p.m. Try that out, see how that works. Maybe we'll move it to seven if six is not great. I don't know. We'll see because I know West Coast people. You know, six o'clock is literally like three o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, but that's the you know if you work a normie job, that's when you're starting to wrap wrap things up and you're ready to go home. So we'll be yeah. your car ride through the terrible traffic. And most of the people that follow this listen to it on the podcast in audio form. Mm, yeah. Um, and most people that watch it here on YouTube watch it after the fact. So you know, it's the I guess the time of the live stream isn't so important yet. We're yeah, still whoever, growing. Whoever but the other person in there is, like and subscribe if you like what we're doing, yeah. and uh, you're going to help us fund the growth of this channel and get on to uh Verveke. yeah Verveke's channel and give john Verveke some love give him some likes and subscribes comment on these videos guys that helps that algorithm more than anything and tell your f- friends and family uh anybody that's out there that is starting to feel that sense of meaninglessness in the world or a sense of hopelessness or is just noticing the growing division has some concern about it wants to know what one can do to help Look at John Verveke's work and those others that he surrounded himself with. There's some amazing people that he's surrounded with and some beautiful conversations on his channel as well as meditation advice. You can also find that here on Actual Eye. We have uh, guided Wim Hof breathing tutorials, guided meditations, um, poetry readings if you just want something to like listen to and relax to or go to sleep to and all kinds of other conversations and deep philosophical introspections into the great mysteries of life that's the name of the game here's what we do so love you guys thank you so much for joining us i've been chris i've been dj and we will see you next wednesday